Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo. Book 7, Chapter 6. The Effect Produced by Seven Oaths in the Public Square. The Deum Laudamus. There is no place without its genius, cried Master Jeanne, as he stepped from his hiding place. The two screech owls have gone. Ach, ach. Hacks, packs, max. The fleas. The mad dogs. The devil. I've had enough of their talk. My head rings like a belfry. Moldy cheese into the bargain. Now then, let us be off. Let us take our big brother's purse and convert all these coins into bottles. He cast a look of tenderness and admiration into the interior of the precious purse, adjusted his dress, wiped his boots, dusted his poor shoulder pads all gray with ashes, whistled a tune, frisked about, looked to see if there was nothing left in the cell which he might carry off, scraped up a few glass charms and trinkets from the top of the stove, thinking he might pass them off upon Isabeau Latierie for jewels, then gave a push to the door, which his brother had left ajar as a final favor, and which he left open in his turn as a final piece of mischief and hopped down the winding stairs as nimbly as a bird. In the midst of the shadows of the spiral staircase, he elbowed something which moved aside with a growl. He took it for granted that it was Quasimodo, and this struck him as so droll that he held his sides with laughter all the rest of the way down. As he came out into the public square, he was still laughing. He stamped his foot when he found himself on solid ground once more. Oh, said he, good and honorable pavement of Paris, cursed stairs, which would put all the angels of Jacob's ladder out of breath. What was I thinking of when I poked myself into that stone gimlet which pierces the sky? And all to eat musty cheese, and to see the steeples of Paris through a garret window. He walked on a few paces, and saw the two screech owls that is to say, Dom Claude and Master Jacques Charmelou, lost in contemplation of a bit of carving on the porch. He approached them on tiptoe, and heard the archdeacon say in a very low voice to Charmelou, It was Guillaume de Paris who had a job graven on that lapis lazuli-colored stone, gilded at the edges. Job represents the philosopher's stone which must also be tried and tortured before it can become perfect. As Raymond Lule says, Sub conservatione formae specifiae salva anima. By preserving it under a special form, the soul is saved. That's all one to me, said Jeanne. Tis I who hold the purse. At this instant he heard a loud ringing voice pronounce a terrible string of oaths just behind him. Zounds, odds bodikins, by the rude, by cock and pie, damn, death, thunder and mars. By my soul, exclaimed Jeanne, that can be no other than my friend Captain Phoebus. The name of Phoebus reached the archdeacon's ears, just as he was explaining to the king's proxy the dragon hiding his tail in a bath from which rise smoke and a king's head. Dom Claude shuddered, stopped short, to the great surprise of Charmelou, turned, 
and saw his brother Jean talking to a tall officer at the door of the Gondolorier house. It was indeed Captain Phoebus de Chateau-Pers. He was leaning against the corner of his lady-love's house and swearing like a pirate. "'My word, Captain Phoebus,' said Jean, taking him by the hand, "'you swear with admirable spirit.' "'Thunder and Mars,' replied the captain. "'Thunder and Mars yourself,' responded the student. "'Now then, my fine captain, "'what has caused such an outburst of elegant epithets?' "'Your pardon, good comrade Jean,' cried Phoebus, "'shaking him by the hand. "'But a horse running at full speed cannot stop short. "'Now I was swearing at full gallop. "'I have just come from those prudes.' and when I leave them, I always have my mouth full of oaths. I must needs spit them out, or I should choke. Thunder and guns! Will you take a drink? asked the student. This proposition calmed the captain. With pleasure, but I've no money. But I have. Pshaw, let me see. Jeanne displayed the purse to the captain's eyes with dignity and simplicity. Meanwhile, the archdeacon, having left the amazed Charmeleau, had approached them, and stood some paces distant, watching them both unobserved by them, so absorbed were they in looking at the purse. Phoebus exclaimed, "'A purse in your pocket, Jeanne. That's like the moon in a pail of water. I see it, but it is not really there. It's only a shadow. By heaven, I wager there's nothing but pebbles in it.' Jean answered coldly, "'I'll show you the kind of pebbles that I pave my pocket with.' And without another word he emptied the purse upon a neighboring post, with the air of a Roman saving his country. "'Good God!' muttered Phoebus. "'Gold pieces, big silver pieces, little silver pieces, crowns, shillings, and pence. It is dazzling!' Jean remained dignified and unmoved." A few pennies had rolled into the mud. The captain, in his enthusiasm, stooped to pick them up. Jean restrained him, saying, "'Fie, Captain Phoebus de Chateau-Pers!' Phoebus counted the money, and turning solemnly to Jean, asked, "'Do you know, Jean, that you have here twenty-three crowns?' "'Whom did you rob last night in the Rue Coupe-Gaule?' Jean threw back his fair curly head, and said, half-closing his eyes in scorn, "'I have a brother who is an archdeacon and a fool.' "'Confound it!' cried Phoebus. "'So you have, the worthy fellow.' "'Let us take a drink,' said Jean. "'Where shall we go?' said Phoebus. "'To the Pomme d'Ève.' "'No, Captain. Let us go to the Vieille Science.' "'No, the wine is better at the Pomme d'Ève, and besides, at the door is a vine in the sun, which cheers me as I drink.' "'So be it,' said the student, and taking Phoebus by the arm, the two friends set out for that tavern. It is needless to say that they first picked up the money, and that the archdeacon followed them. The archdeacon followed them, sad and worn. Was this the Phoebus whose accursed name— since his interview with Gringoire, had mingled with all his thoughts? He knew not, but at any rate it was a Phoebus, and that magic name was enough to make the archdeacon follow the two heedless comrades with stealthy tread, 
listening to their every word and noting their least gesture with eager attention. Moreover, nothing was easier than to hear everything they said, for they spoke very loud, utterly regardless of the fact that they were taking the passers-by into their confidence. They talked of duels, women, drinking, and riots. At the corner of a street, the sound of a tambourine was heard from a neighboring crossway. Dom Claude overheard the officer say to the student, "'Thunder! We must hasten!' "'Why, Phoebus? I'm afraid the gypsy girl will see me.' "'What gypsy girl?' That little thing with the goat. Smeralda? Just so, Jeanne. I always forget her devil of a name. Make haste. She would be sure to recognize me. I don't wish to have that girl accost me in the street. Do you know her, Phoebus? Here the archdeacon saw Phoebus chuckle, put his mouth to Jeanne's ear, and whisper a few words to him. Then he burst out laughing and shook his head with a triumphant air. "'Really?' said Jeanne. "'Upon my soul,' said Phoebus. "'Tonight? Tonight. "'Are you sure she will come? "'Are you mad, Jeanne? "'How can there be any doubt in such matters? "'Captain Phoebus, you are a lucky soldier.' The archdeacon heard every word of this conversation. His teeth chattered. He shook from head to foot. He stood still a moment, leaned against a post like a drunken man, then followed in the track of the two jolly scamps. When he rejoined them, they had changed the subject. He heard them singing at the top of their voices the old refrain. The lads of petty tiles, they say, like calves are butchered every day. Chapter 7 the Spectre Monk. The famous tavern known as the Pomme d'Eve was situated in the university, at the corner of the Rue de la Rondelle and the Rue du Batonnier. It was a large, low room on the ground floor, with an arched roof, the central spring of which rested on a huge wooden pillar painted yellow. There were tables in every direction, shining pewter jugs hung on the wall, there were always plenty of topers, lots of girls, a window looking on the street, a vine at the door, and over the door a creaking piece of sheet iron, on which were painted a woman and an apple, rusted by the rain and swinging in the wind on an iron rod. This kind of weathercock, which overlooked the pavement, was the sign. Night was falling, the streets were dark. The tavern full of candles flared from a distance like a forge in the gloom. A noise of glasses, of feasting, of oaths, and of quarrels escaped from the broken window panes. Through the mist with which the heat of the room covered the glazed casement in front of the inn swarmed a myriad confused figures, and from time to time a ringing burst of laughter was heard. People passing, intent on their own affairs, hastened by that noisy window without a glance. But now and then some little ragged boy would raise himself on tiptoe to the window-sill, and scream into the tavern the old mocking cry with which drunkards were often greeted at this period. "'Back to your glasses, ye drunken, drunken asses!' One man, however, 
marched imperturbably up and down in front of the noisy tavern, looking continually, and never stirring farther away from it than a pikeman from his sentry-box. His cloak was pulled up to his very nose. This cloak he had just bought from the old clothes-man, who lived hard by the Pomme d'Eve, doubtless to shield himself from the chill of the March evening, perhaps to hide his dress. From time to time he paused before the dim panes set in lead, listened, looked, and stamped his feet impatiently. At last the tavern door opened. This seemed to be what he was waiting for. Two tipplers came out. The ray of light which escaped through the door for a moment reddened their jovial faces. The man with the cloak took up his position under a porch on the other side of the street. "'Thunder and guns,' said one of the two drinkers. "'It will strike seven directly. It is the hour for my appointment.' "'I tell you,' resumed his companion, with a thick utterance, "'that I do not live in the Rue des Mauvaises Paroles. Indignus qui intermala verba habitat. He is unworthy who dwelleth among evil words. My lodgings are in the Rue Jean-Pin-Molay, in Vico Joannes Pine Molette. You are more unreasonable than a unicorn if you say to the contrary. Everybody knows that he who has once climbed upon a bear's back is never afraid. But you've a fine nose for scenting out dainty bits like Saint-Jacques de l'Hôpital. Jean, my friend, you are drunk, said the other. He replied, staggering, So it pleases you to say, Phoebus, but it is well proven that Plato had the profile of a hunting dog. The reader has undoubtedly recognized our two worthy friends, the captain and the student. It seems that the man lurking in the shadow had also recognized them, for he followed with slow steps all the zigzags which the student forced the captain to describe, the latter, a more hardened drinker, having preserved entire self-possession. By listening carefully, the man with the cloak was able to catch the whole of the following interesting conversation. "'Body of Bacchus, do try to walk straight, Master Bachelor. You know that I shall have to leave you. Here it is seven o'clock. I have an appointment with a woman.' Leave me, then. Do. I see fiery stars and spears. You are like the Chateau de Dampmartin, which burst with laughter. By my grandmother's warts, Jeanne, your nonsense is rather too desperate. By the by, Jeanne, haven't you any money left? Mr. Rector, there's no mistake. The little butcher's shop. Parva Bucheria. Jeanne, friend Jeanne. You know that I made an appointment to meet that little girl at the end of the Pont Saint-Michel, that I can't take her anywhere but to La Falardelle, the old hag on the bridge, and that I must pay for the room. The white-whiskered old jade gives no credit. Jeanne, for pity's sake, have we drunk up the priest's whole purse? Haven't you a penny left? The consciousness that you have spent the rest of your time well is a good and savory table sauce. Thunder and blazes, a truce to your nonsense. Tell me, Jeanne, you devil, have you any money left? Give it to me by heaven, or I will rob you, were you as leprous as Job and as mangy as Caesar.' 
Sir, the Rue Galiache is a street which runs from the Rue de la Verrerie to the Rue de la Tixeranderie. Yes, yes, good friend Jeanne, my poor comrade, the Rue Galiache. That's all right, quite right. But in heaven's name, come to your senses. I want only a few pence, and my appointment is for seven o'clock. Silence all around, and pay attention to my song. When the rats have eaten every case, the king shall be lord of Eris race. When the sea, so deep and wide, is frozen o'er at St. John's tide, across the ice we then shall see the Eris men their city flee. There, then, scholar of Antichrist, the foul fiend fly away with you, cried Phoebus, and he gave the tipsy student a violent push, which sent him reeling against the wall, whence he fell gently to the pavement of Philip Augustus. With a remnant of that brotherly compassion which never quite forsakes the heart of a toper, Phoebus rolled Jeanne with his foot over upon one of those pillows of the poor which Providence keeps in readiness at every street corner in Paris, and which the rich scornfully stigmatize as dunghills. The captain arranged Jeanne's head on an inclined plane of cabbage stalks, and the student instantly began to snore in a magnificent bass. However, all rancor was not yet dead in the captain's heart. "'So much the worse for you if the devil's cart picks you up as it passes,' said he to the poor sleeping scholar, and he went his way. The man in the cloak, who had not ceased following him, paused for a moment beside the prostrate student, as if uncertain. Then, heaving a deep sigh, he also departed in the captain's wake. Like them, we will leave Jeanne to sleep under the friendly watch of the bright stars, and we too will follow them, if it so please the reader. As he emerged into the Rue Saint-André-des-Arcs, Captain Phoebus discovered that someone was following him. As he accidentally glanced behind him, he saw a kind of shadow creeping behind him along the walls. He stopped, it stopped. He walked on again, the shadow also walked on. This troubled him but very little. Pooh, said he to himself, I have not a penny about me. In front of the Collège d'Auton he came to a halt. It was at this college that he had passed through what he was pleased to call his studies, and from a habit learned in his student days, he never passed the statue of Cardinal Pierre Bertrand without stopping to mock at it. He therefore paused before the statue as usual. The street was deserted, save for the shadow approaching slowly, so slowly that he had ample time to observe that it wore a cloak and a hat. Coming close up to him, it stopped, and stood more motionless than the statue of Cardinal Bertrand itself. But it fastened upon Phoebus a pair of eyes full of that vague light seen at night in the pupil of a cat's eye. The captain was brave, and would not have cared a farthing for a thief with a bludgeon in his hand. But this walking statue, this petrified man, froze his very blood. At that time there were current in society strange stories of the spectral monk who prowled the streets of Paris by night. 
These tales now came confusedly to his mind, and for some moments he stood stupefied. At last he broke the silence with a forced laugh, saying, "'Sir, if you are a robber, as I hope, you remind me of a heron attacking a nutshell. I am the son of a ruined family, my dear fellow. You've come to the wrong shop. You'd better go next door.' In the chapel of that college there is a piece of the true cross set in silver. The hand of the shadow was stretched from under the cloak and swooped down upon Phoebus's arm with the grip of an eagle's talons. At the same time the shadow spoke. Captain Phoebus de Chateaupers. What the devil, said Phoebus, do you know my name? I not only know your name— replied the man in the cloak, with his sepulchral voice. But I know that you have a rendezvous this evening. Yes, answered the astonished Phoebus. At seven o'clock. In fifteen minutes. At La Falordelle's. Exactly so. The old hag of the Pont Saint-Michel. Saint-Michel the archangel, as the paternoster says. Impious wretch! muttered the spectre. With a woman? Confiteor, whose name is Esmeralda, said Phoebus, cheerfully. He had gradually recovered all his unconcern. Captain Phoebus de Chateaupers, you lie. Anyone who could at this moment have seen the captain's flaming face, his backward bound, so violent that it released him from the vice-like grasp that held him, the haughty air with which he clapped his hand to his sword-hilt, and the gloomy immobility of the man in the cloak in the presence of this rage. Anyone who saw all this would have trembled with fear. It was something like the fight between Don Juan and the statue. "'Christ and Satan!' cried the captain." That is a word which seldom greets the ears of a chateau pairs. You dare not repeat it. You lie, said the shadow, coldly. The captain gnashed his teeth. Spectre monk, phantom, superstitions, all were forgotten at this instant. He saw nothing but a man and an insult. Ha! It is well, he stammered, in a voice stifled by rage. He drew his sword, then, stuttering, for anger makes a man tremble as well as fear. Here, on the spot, now then, swords, swords, blood upon these stones. But the other never stirred. When he saw his adversary on his guard, and ready to burst with wrath, he said, Captain Phoebus, and his voice quivered with bitterness. You forget your rendezvous. The fits of passion of such men as Phoebus are like boiling milk. A drop of cold water is enough to check their fury. At these simple words, the sword which glittered in the captain's hand was lowered. Captain, continued the man, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, in a month, in ten years, you will find me ready to cut your throat. But keep your rendezvous first. Indeed, said Phoebus, as if trying to compound with his conscience, a sword and a girl are both charming things to encounter by appointment. 
but I do not see why I should miss one for the sake of the other, when I might have both. He replaced his sword in his scabbard. Go to your rendezvous, replied the stranger. Sir, answered Phoebus, with some embarrassment, many thanks for your courtesy. You are right in saying that tomorrow will be time enough for us to cut slashes and buttonholes in Father Adam's doublet. I am obliged to you for allowing me to pass another agreeable quarter of an hour. I did indeed hope to put you to bed in the gutter, and yet be in time for my fair one. The more so that it is genteel to keep the women waiting a little in such cases. But you look to me like a determined dog." and it is safer to put the party off until tomorrow. I will therefore go to my appointment. It is for seven o'clock, as you know. Here Phoebus scratched his ear. Ah, by my halidom! I forgot. I have not a penny to pay the toll for the use of the garret, and the old hag must be paid in advance. She won't trust me. Here is money to pay her. Phoebus felt the stranger's cold hand slip a large piece of money into his. He could not help taking the money and squeezing the hand. "'By God!' he exclaimed. "'You're a good fellow.' "'One condition,' said the man. "'Prove to me that I was wrong and that you spoke the truth. Hide me in some corner where I can see whether this woman be really she whose name you mentioned.' "'Oh,' answered Phoebus, "'with all my heart. "'We will take St. Martha's room. "'You can look in very easily from the kennel beside it.' "'Come on, then,' said the shadow. "'At your service,' replied the captain. "'I don't know whether or no you are a master diabolus in propria persona, "'but let us be good friends for tonight. "'Tomorrow I will pay you all my debts of purse and sword.' They set forth at a rapid pace. In a few moments the sound of the river warned them that they stood on Pont Saint-Michel, then covered with houses. "'I will first get you in,' said Phoebus to his companion. "'Then I will go and fetch my charmer, who was to wait for me near the Petit Chatelet.' His comrade made no answer. Since they had walked side by side, he had not said a word." Phoebus stopped before a low door and knocked loudly. A light appeared through the chinks of the door. "'Who is there?' cried a mumbling voice. "'By St. Luke's face, by God's passion, by the rude,' answered the captain. The door opened instantly, and revealed to the newcomers an old woman and an old lamp, both in a very shaky state. The old woman was bent double, dressed in rags, her head shook, she had very small eyes, wore a kerchief on her head, and her hand, face, and neck were covered with wrinkles. Her lips retreated under her gums, and she had tufts of white hair all around her mouth, which gave her the demure look of a cat. The interior of the hovel was as dilapidated as its mistress. There were whitewashed walls, black beams running across the ceiling, a dismantled fireplace, cobwebs in every corner. In the middle of the room stood a rickety collection of tables and chairs. A dirty child played in the ashes, and in the background a staircase, or rather a wooden ladder, 
led to a trapdoor in the ceiling. On entering this den, Phoebus's mysterious companion pulled his cloak up to his eyes. But the captain, swearing all the time like a Turk, hastened to make the sun flash from a crown piece, as our all-accomplished Renier says. St. Martha's room, said he. The old woman treated him like a lord, and put the coin away in a drawer. It was the money which the man in the black cloak had given Phoebus. While her back was turned, the ragged, disheveled little boy who was playing in the ashes went adroitly to the drawer, took out the crown piece, and put in its place a dried leaf which he had pulled from a faggot. The old woman beckoned to the two gentlemen, as she called them to follow her, and climbed the ladder before them. On reaching the upper floor, she placed her lamp upon a chest, and Phoebus, as one familiar with the house, opened a door leading to a dark hole. "'Go in there, my dear boy,' said he to his comrade. The man in the cloak obeyed without a word. The door closed behind him. He heard Phoebus bolt it, and a moment after go downstairs again with the old woman. The light had disappeared." Chapter 8. The Advantage of Windows Overlooking the River Claude Frollo, for we presume that the reader, more clever than Phoebus, has discovered that this spectral monk was no other than the archdeacon. Claude Frollo groped about for some time in the gloomy hole into which the captain had bolted him. It was one of those nooks such as architects sometimes leave at the junction of the roof and outer wall. The vertical section of this kennel, as Phoebus had so aptly called it, would have formed a triangle. Moreover, there was neither window nor loophole, and the pitch of the roof was so steep that it was impossible to stand upright. Claude, therefore, squatted in the dust and mortar which crumbled beneath him. His head was burning. As he felt about him with his hands, he found upon the ground a bit of broken glass, which he pressed to his forehead, its coolness somewhat refreshing him. What went on at this moment in the archdeacon's dark soul? God and himself alone knew. According to what fatal order did he dispose in his thoughts Esmeralda, Phoebus, Jacques Charmelou, his young brother, so greatly loved, deserted by him in the mud, his archdeacon's gown, perhaps his reputation, dragged through the mire of La Falordel's abode. All these images, all these adventures. I cannot say, but it is certain that the ideas formed a horrible group in his mind. He waited a quarter of an hour. He felt as if a century had been added to his age. All at once he heard the boards of the wooden staircase creak. Someone was coming up. The trap-door opened. A light appeared. There was a considerable crack in the worm-eaten door of his prison. To this he glued his face. Thus he could see everything that happened in the next room. The cat-faced old woman first rose from the trap-door, lamp in hand. Then came Phoebus, twirling his mustache. Then a third person. That lovely, graceful creature— Esmeralda. The priest saw her rise from below like a dazzling apparition. 
he trembled. A cloud came before his eyes. His veins swelled to bursting. Everything swam before him. He saw and heard nothing more. When he recovered his senses, Phoebus and Esmeralda were alone, seated on the wooden chest beside the lamp, whose light revealed to the archdeacon's eyes their two youthful figures, and a miserable pallet at the back of the garret. Beside the pallet there was a window, through whose panes, shattered like a cobweb upon which rain has fallen, were seen a patch of sky and the moon in the distance resting on a bed of soft clouds. The young girl was blushing and trembling and confused. Her long drooping lashes shaded her flushed cheeks. The officer, to whose face she dared not raise her eyes, was radiant. Mechanically, and with a charming awkwardness, she drew meaningless lines on the bench with her fingertip, and then looked at her finger. Her feet were hidden, for the little goat was lying upon them. The captain was very gallantly arrayed. At his wrists and neck he wore embroidery, then considered very elegant. Dom Claude could scarcely hear what they said for the throbbing of his temples. Lovers' talk is very commonplace. It is a perpetual, I love you. A very bare and very insipid phrase to an indifferent ear, unless adorned with a few grace notes. But Claude was not an indifferent listener. Oh, said the girl, without raising her eyes, do not despise me, my lord Phoebus. I feel that I am doing very wrong. Despise you, pretty child, replied the officer with an air of extreme gallantry. Despise you? By God's passion. And why? For coming here with you. On that point, my beauty, we are not agreed. I should not despise you, but hate you. The young girl gazed at him in a fright. Hate me? What have I done? For requiring so much urging. Alas, said she, that is because I am breaking a sacred vow. I shall never find my parents. The amulet will lose its virtue. But what does that matter? Why should I need father or mother now? So saying, she fixed upon the captain her large, dark eyes, moist with love and joy. "'The devil take me if I understand you!' exclaimed Phoebus. Esmeralda was silent for a moment. Then a tear fell from her eyes, a sigh from her lips, and she said, "'Oh, my lord, I love you!' There was such an odor of chastity— such a charm of virtue about the young girl, that Phoebus did not feel wholly at his ease with her. But this speech emboldened him. "'You love me,' said he, with transport, and he threw his arm around the gypsy's waist. He had only waited for such an opportunity. The priest saw him, and tested with the tip of his finger the point of a dagger hidden in his bosom. "'Phoebus,' continued the gypsy girl, gently removing the captain's stubborn hands from her girdle. You are good, you are generous, you are kind. You saved me, me, who am but a poor gypsy foundling. 
I have long dreamed of an officer who should save my life. It was of you I dreamed before I ever knew you, my Phoebus. The image of my dreams had a gorgeous uniform like yours, a grand air, a sword. Your name is Phoebus. It is a beautiful name. I love your name. I love your sword. Draw your sword, Phoebus, and let me see it. "'Child,' said the captain, and he unsheathed his rapier with a smile. The gypsy girl studied the handle, the blade, examined the letters on the hilt with adorable curiosity, and kissed the sword, as she said, "'You are a brave man's sword. I love my captain.' Phoebus again took advantage of the situation to imprint on her lovely bent neck a kiss which made the girl start up as red as a cherry. The priest ground his teeth in the darkness at the sight. "'Phoebus,' resumed the gypsy, "'let me talk to you. Walk about a little, so that I may have a good look at you, and hear your spurs jingle. How handsome you are!' The captain rose to gratify her, while he scolded her with a smile of satisfaction. "'What a child you are!' "'By the way, my charmer, did you ever see me in my full-dress uniform?' "'Alas, no,' she replied. "'Well, that is really fine.' Phoebus came back and sat down beside her, but much nearer than before. "'Look here, my dear.' The gypsy gave him a few little taps on the lips with her pretty hand, with a childish playfulness full of gaiety and grace." "'No, no, I will not listen. Do you love me? I want you to tell me if you love me.' "'Do I love you, angel of my life?' cried the captain, half kneeling before her. "'My body, my soul, my blood are yours. I am all yours, all yours. I love you, and never loved anyone but you.' The captain had so often repeated this phrase on many a similar occasion that he uttered it in a breath, without making a single mistake. At this passionate declaration, the gypsy turned towards the dirty ceiling, which took the place of heaven, a look of angelic happiness. Oh, she murmured, at such a moment one might well wish to die. Phoebus thought the moment a good one to steal another kiss, which inflicted fresh torment on the wretched archdeacon in his lair. "'To die!' exclaimed the amorous captain. "'What are you talking about, my lovely angel? It is just the time to live, or Jupiter is but a paltry knave. Die at the beginning of such a pleasant thing? By St. Luke's face, what a joke! That would never do!' Listen, my dear similar, Esmenarda, forgive me, but you have such a vastly outlandish name that I can never get it straight. I'm forever getting entangled in it. Good heavens, said the poor girl, and I thought the name pretty just for its oddness. But if you don't like it, I'm quite ready to change it for anything you please. Ah, do not cry for such a trifle, my dearest. It's a name to which one has to get used, that's all. Once I have learned it by heart, it will be all right. Now listen, my dear Similar, 
I adore you passionately. I love you to such a degree that it is really marvelous. I know a little girl who is bursting with rage about it. The jealous damsel cut him short. Who is she? What difference does that make to us, said Phoebus? Do you love me? Oh, said she. Well, then, that is all that is necessary. You shall see how I love you, too. May the great devil Neptune bestride me if I do not make you the happiest creature in the world. We will have a pretty little room somewhere. I will review my archers under your windows. They are all mounted, and make nothing of Captain Mignon's men. They are spearmen, crossbowmen, and culverin men. I will take you to see the great Paris musters at the Grange de Rouly. It's a very fine sight. Eight thousand helmeted heads, thirty thousand bright harnesses, coats of mail, or brigandines, sixty-seven banners of the various guilds, the standards of the Parliament, the Chamber of Accounts, the Treasury, the assistants in the Mint. In fact, the devil's own train. I will take you to see the lions at the King's Palace, which are wild beasts. All the women like that. For some moments, the young girl, wrapped in her own delightful thoughts, had been dreaming to the sound of his voice without heeding the meaning of his words. Oh, how happy you will be, continued the captain, and at the same time he gently unclasped the gypsy's belt. What are you doing? said she quickly. This act of violence startled her from her reverie. Nothing, answered Phoebus. I was merely saying that you must give up this ridiculous mountebank dress when you come to live with me. When I live with you, my Phoebus, said the young girl tenderly. She again became pensive and silent. The captain, made bold by her gentleness, took her by the waist without any resistance on her part, then began noiselessly to unlace the poor child's bodice, and so disarranged her neckerchief that the panting priest saw the gypsy's lovely shoulder issue from the gauze, plump and brown, like the moon rising through the mists on the horizon. The young girl let Phoebus have his way. She did not seem conscious of what he was doing. The bold captain's eyes sparkled. All at once she turned towards him. Phoebus, she said, with a look of infinite love, instruct me in your religion. My religion, cried the captain, bursting into laughter. I instruct you in my religion. Thunder and guns, what do you want with my religion? To be married to you, she answered. The captain's face assumed an expression of mingled surprise, scorn, recklessness, and evil passion. Nonsense, said he. Why should we marry? The gypsy turned pale, and let her head sink sadly on her breast. My pretty love, tenderly added Phoebus, what are all these foolish ideas? Marriage is nothing. Is anyone less loving for not having spouted a little Latin in some priest's shop? So saying, in his sweetest voice, he approached extremely near the gypsy girl. His caressing hands had resumed their place around the lithe, slender waist, and his eye kindled more and more, 
and everything showed that Master Phoebus was about to enjoy one of those moments in which Jupiter himself commits so many follies that the good Homer is obliged to call in a cloud to help him. But Dom Claude saw all. The door was made of decayed puncheon staves, which left ample room between them for the passage of his hawk-like glance. The brown-skinned, broad-shouldered priest, hitherto condemned to the austere rule of the convent, shuddered and burned at this scene of love, darkness, and passion. The young and lovely girl, her garments in disorder, abandoning herself to this ardent young man, made his veins run molten lead. An extraordinary agitation shook him. His eye sought, with lustful desire, to penetrate beneath all these unfastened pins. Anyone who had at this moment seen the face of the unhappy man glued to the worm-eaten bars might have thought he saw a tiger glaring from his cage at some jackal devouring a gazelle. His pupils glowed like a candle through the cracks of the door. Suddenly, with a rapid motion, Phoebus removed the gypsy's neckerchief. The poor child, who still sat pale and dreamy, sprang up with a start. She retreated hastily from the enterprising officer, and glancing at her bare throat and shoulders, red, confused, and dumb with shame, she crossed her lovely arms over her bosom to cover it. But for the flame which mantled her cheeks, anyone seeing her thus silent and motionless might have thought her a statue of modesty." Her eyes were downcast. Meantime, the captain's action had exposed the mysterious amulet which she wore about her neck. "'What's this?' said he, seizing the pretext to draw nearer to the beautiful creature whom he had alarmed. "'Do not touch it,' she replied, quickly. "'It is my protector. It will help me to find my family, if I am still worthy of it. "'Oh, leave me, Mr. Captain!' "'My mother! My poor mother! Mother, where are you? Help me now! For heaven's sake, Mr. Phoebus, give me back my neckerchief!' Phoebus drew back and said in a cold tone, "'Oh, young lady, I see very plainly that you do not love me!' "'I do not love him!' exclaimed the unhappy creature, and at the same time she hung upon the captain, whom she drew to a seat by her side. "'I not love you, my Phoebus? How can you say so, you wicked man, to break my heart? Oh, come, take me, take everything, do with me what you will, I am yours. What do I care for the amulet? What is my mother to me now? You are my mother, for I love you. Phoebus, my adored Phoebus!' Do you see me? It is I. Look at me. It is that little girl whom you cannot repulse, who comes, who comes herself in search of you. My soul, my life, my person are yours. I am all yours, my captain. No, then, we will not marry. It would trouble you. And what am I? A miserable child of the gutter, while you, my Phoebus, are a gentleman." A fine thing, truly, a dancing girl to marry an officer. 
I was mad. No, Phoebus, no. I will be your mistress, your amusement, your pleasure, when you will. Always yours. I am only made for that, to be soiled, despised, dishonored. But what matter? I shall be loved. I shall be the proudest and happiest of women. And when I grow old or ugly, Phoebus, when I am no longer fit to love you, my lord, you will still suffer me to serve you. Others may embroider your scarves, but I, your servant, will take care of them. You will let me polish your spurs, brush your coat, dust your riding boots. You will have this much pity for me, my Phoebus, will you not? Meantime, take me. There, Phoebus, all this belongs to you. Only love me. We gypsy girls need nothing else. Nothing but air and love. As she said this, she flung her arms around the officer's neck. She gazed up into his face imploringly, and with a lovely smile through her tears. Her delicate throat rubbed against his cloth doublet with its rough embroideries. She threw herself across his lap, her beautiful body half-revealed. The enraptured captain pressed his burning lips to those beautiful brown shoulders. The young girl, her eyes fixed on the ceiling, her head thrown back, shuddered and trembled at his kiss. All at once, above the head of Phoebus, she saw another head, a livid, green, convulsed face with the look of a soul in torment. Beside this face there was a hand which held a dagger. It was the face and the hand of the priest. He had broken open the door, and he was there. Phoebus could not see him. The girl was motionless, frozen, mute at the frightful apparition, like a dove which chances to raise its head at the instant when the sea eagle glares into its nest with fiery eyes. She could not even utter a cry. She saw the dagger descend upon Phoebus and rise again, reeking. Malediction, said the captain, and he fell. She fainted. As her eyes closed, as all consciousness left her, she fancied she felt a fiery touch upon her lips, a kiss more burning than the torturer's red-hot iron. When she recovered her senses, she was surrounded by the soldiers of the watch, some of whom were just carrying off the captain, bathed in his own blood. The priest had vanished. The window at the back of the room, which opened upon the river, was wide open. Someone picked up a cloak, which he supposed belonged to the officer, and she heard the soldiers say, She is a sorceress who has stabbed a captain.